since 1971. From New York City this morning, an old friend of ours, Gilda Radner. Hi, Mike. First thing we called about is we interviewed the, all the semifinalists in the Anyone Can Host Saturday Night Contest. Did, did we ruin their lives? The home of rock and roll throughout the 70s and into the 80s. Speaking at a recent industry convention, Krauss claimed that Super Dick's discs are just not a passing fad. <laughs> Your Freudian slip is showing. <laughs> is, do we save that one? Detroit's only real rock and roll radio station in the decade of the 90s. Hey, it's Meltdown back here with uh, Papa Hat, James Hetfield. Welcome back to the Motor City, man. Thank you, Meltdown. How goes it? If it rocks, it's on the riff in the early part of the 21st century. Let's hear on the riff line at 248-544-WRIF. It's 248-544-9743. Or um, you can call us at 851-855-9743. are these phone numbers you're even saying? (laughs) You're not making any sense. I am. 49743. Dude, you were like one of those... Reporters who's lost their minds <laughs> and they're like, back to you guys. For nearly 50 years, we are, have been, and continue to be 101 WRIF. Welcome to the podcast, uh, The History of WRIF. I'm your host, Mike Staff. You heard me on the riff from 1992 to 2006, at which time I retired from radio completely and moved to Traverse City to raise my family. So it's an absolute privilege to be back doing this podcast in which we're talking to the people and the personalities that have made the riff, well, the riff. And there has been a lot of personalities on this radio station throughout the last 50 years or so each adding their own personality to the overall identity of WRIF. My guest today is Steve Black. Steve has made a very unique and important contribution, not only to WRIF, but also to Detroit Rock Radio. He's been a part of the Riff Air staff for the better part of 17 years. And before that, um, he was Ted Nugent's co-host when Deadly Tedly did his morning show on The Bear many years ago as a competitor to the Drew and Mike show, which we'll actually talk a little bit about that. And he's not only known in Detroit, but Steve is known all over the country. He's produced over 2,300 syndicated radio shows with The Chop Shop which has aired on over 170 radio stations in the U.S. Another interesting thing about Steve is that he has interviewed as many, if not more, rock stars than anyone on the riff. I think the latest count is about 1,500 and uh, and counting. And finally, I might add that uh, Steve is the executive producer of this podcast, and he's been behind the scenes the whole time. So, Steve, it is very, very cool to be sharing the mic with you today. Uh, Distantly. (laughs) <laughs> distantly sharing the microphones yeah uh, kind of in an experimental process as well i mean you know we've tried to do all of these in person uh mike which i think is incredibly cool uh to bring in all these old personalities from wrif and some of the current ones as well and to be in the same room but the, the world suddenly changed on us so we're experimenting with our uh t- technological abilities here yeah, it's really cool. It still blows my mind that I could be 200 and basically 40 miles away from you uh, on Zoom is what we were recording this on. And uh, it kind of feels like we're in the same room. Yeah, it actually kind of does. It's, it's probably the new normal. So, <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so, Steve, you are from Michigan, a Michiganer, grew up in Flushing, and Flushing gets Riff Signal pretty good, doesn't it? Do you remember listening to Riff as a kid? Or uh, I needed Detroit um, badly, not just radio, but television as well. So, of course, we had the old aerial antenna that you could climb up the tower and stuff. So I don't remember what age it was, but I uh, the antenna was literally outside my bedroom window. And at some point I figured out I could take a copper wire and run it from the back of my stereo and hook it to the TV antenna. So I had this giant aerial antenna so I could finally pull in Detroit stations. Yeah. Got it. So you yeah. you were able to listen to Flint stations or Detroit stations. Yes. And uh, WWCK and Flint, which is you know, was huge, huge, huge for me personally, was also uh, an actual number one rock station in America when I was a teenager. Like it was bigger uh, than even the Detroit properties for a year, year and a half. So it was very influential. Yeah. WWCK was definitely the heritage rock station of Flint. Basically. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. kind of the riff of Flint. Do you, re, um, do you remember listening to the riff as a kid? Like, what stands out to you when you think back of the riff when you were younger? The first thing I remember is just Detroit seemed so big. Uh, and where I lived in Flushing, I was um, almost halfway between Flint and Saginaw. You know, fairly close, probably uh, 25 minutes from Flint, 35 minutes from Saginaw. Uh, but we were way out there. I mean, there was an apple orchard just beyond the field in our backyard. You know, we grew up with a bow range back there and we could shoot guns back there. And there was, you know, cornfields in front of the house. And uh, so the city just seemed enormous. Oh, my God, Detroit. So anything from Detroit was just bright and shiny and crazy. And so I remember listening for that mostly. And in my earlier years, I couldn't really differentiate between what was riff and what was uh, wheels or or I don't think I ever listened to W4ABX. I believe that was before my time. Uh, but the first thing that stood out to me uh, when I started to figure those things out was just Arthur's voice. Arthur P. sounded like nobody else. And when you heard his voice, you knew it was Detroit. You knew it was big time. You knew whatever he was saying had to be important because that guy said it, you know. Yeah, Arthur has always kind of been the the voice of Detroit. You know, so many people have told me, and I have the same encounter, like if you're driving back into Detroit from Florida or wherever you go, and you turn on the riff and you hear Arthur's voice, you kind of feel like you're home. I've, I've uh, felt that way many times, and I consider that among some of the finest compliments I've gotten in my career. I've had people tell me that. Like, you know, I know I'm home when I hear your voice. I'm like, my voice? What are you talking about? You know, but but I get it because I experienced the same thing with the guys I I grew up listening to. So. Yeah, when did you know you wanted to be in radio? Uh, it's kind of interesting because uh, th- there was a moment, if you don't mind me skipping ahead a little bit, uh, and also coming back to that question. Uh, there was a moment when I was working for a radio station, an AM station in Flint, my first job, and um, because of a snowstorm. The next person couldn't make it in, and I wasn't on the air yet. I was just at the station, and they asked me, like, hey, can you go on the air? I'm like, well, yeah, sure, you know? So that was, yeah, so that was my first air shift was just crazy. And I remember the program director calling back up maybe 40 minutes in and goes, I thought you said you never did this before. I said, no, I've never been on the air before. I've been doing it since I was four or five years old in my bedroom. Like, nobody was ever listening before, but I've been doing this my whole life, man, you know? 
It's that old adage, Steve, that, um, you know, when um, um, success comes when 10,000 hours of uh, practice or preparation comes that one moment of opportunity. Yeah. Uh, One of my uh, friends and and somebody I really look up to in the music business, his name's Al Petrelli, and you'll you'll love this, uh, Mike. He's with Trans-Siberian Orchestra, but Al uh, defines luck, quote unquote luck, as when opportunity and preparation meet. Because opportunity comes often, but you're not always prepared for that moment or that opportunity. And at the same time, some of us are prepared forever, and then that opportunity doesn't necessarily come up. So, But when they meet, oh, man, it's magic. So after you had that first experience, it was magic for you. You kind of knew that's what you wanted to do or no? I, I, I think I always wanted to do it. And I even I've had people in high school tell me, I don't necessarily remember it, but they tell me that I told them back in 10th and 11th grade that this is what I was going to do. But it always seems so impossible to me. Like that's something that happens to other people. I'm, it's never going to happen to me. I'm going to end up working in the factory like my dad, you know? (laughs) It wasn't one of your first dreams. Like if you had a dream, dream big, it wasn't necessarily to be on the radio, but it was to be a rock star. Like, wasn't that number one? Like if you could be, um, Actually, number one, this is just the weirdest thing in the world, but you'll be, you already know I, I live on the odd side of, of, uh, of everything anyway, but I always lean towards the weird. Um, I wanted to be a Foley artist. Just the fact that a 10 or 11 or 12-year-old kid knew what a Foley artist was is insane. I'm 51. I have no idea what it is. <laughs> so the Foley artist is the guy who adds sound to movies and television. Oh, cool. And for instance, uh, somebody comes in, uh, let's say 1977, uh, we're filming this thing called Star Wars and we have a blaster. Well, what does that sound like? It doesn't exist. So the Foley artist is the one who then creates the sound of what a blaster sounds like. Yeah, that's cool. Right? Or the Enterprise on uh, TV. Well, what does a warp engine sound like? There isn't one, so you can't record it. You have to create it. And I just think that was a job, you know? I don't know, but I wanted to do that even at like 12 years old. That, that was the job I wanted to do. I wanted to be a Foley artist. That's cool. Um, and then after that, yeah, I, I, a part of me, I don't know if I wanted to be a rock star uh, as much as I wanted to be a producer and an engineer and um, growing up where, band, right? Weren't you in yeah. bands for a while? Yeah. And the, the story behind that, uh, Mike, actually was I was looking for a band to produce. I wanted to record. I wanted to produce something. And where I grew up, you know, you were lucky to find one band. I mean, there just weren't too many people around. So I found the best guys around. And I said, I want to produce you. Can you write songs? Let's produce an album. And long story short, they said, sure, as long as you'll be our singer. <laughs> they, they wanted to kind of change people up and they liked me for whatever reason. And so that was the trade off was, OK, I'll join the band as long as I get to produce the band. And uh mildly i massage a guitar i i can plink around on a keyboard uh, anything i've ever written on guitar or no i did record some keyboard myself i guess i recorded a little bit of guitar myself too but usually i would then give that to the guitar player or the keyboard player and they would turn it into something that sounded great and then i couldn't really play it anymore <laughs> you talked about your, your first um opportunity on the Arizona AM station, but you also worked uh, in Flint at um, a, what, what's called a Z-Rock affiliate, WDLZ. First off, Steve, why don't you explain to our podcast listeners what our, an affiliate station would be for Z-Rock, especially back then? Uh, 
probably easier for most people to think of it in terms of, of television. Uh, if you have, um, you know, Channel 7 in Detroit is part of the ABC network. They do some local things, but most of their big programs comes from the ABC network. So Z-Rock was part of that from a radio standpoint. It was a hard rock. Uh, some people would even go so far as to say heavy metal uh, radio station, but it was broadcast primarily out of Dallas, and you could carry as much of the national programming as you wanted and then supplement with local stuff. Yeah, so you can have a morning show host from Dallas. You can have a midday guy and a local affiliate, and then you might go back to the national guy for afternoons and evenings or whatever. Yep, however you wanted to work it out. You yep. can pick and choose. That's cool. And w- were you on the air, or were they at, at, at uh, DLZ, or were they completely syndicated from dallas uh they started completely syndicated from dallas and what uh all syndicated radio stations eventually find out is if you want to compete at all you have to have a local presence no matter how good the personalities are no matter how good the music is no matter how good the production is if there's nobody local and no way to connect with the local listeners you can only get so big and you'll never grow beyond that so they had to start supplementing with more and more local bits so it was um it was an easy progression for you to get to z-rock when z-rock appeared in detroit but it was kind of you shared the story with me um recently about how you ended up in detroit z-rock and that was just pure willpower wasn't it (laughs) i'm almost embarrassed to this day that i did what i did and i can't believe it worked um and i don't know where that bravado came from uh but what I'm talking about was I, I knew that music and I knew the format, the Xerox format, because I had already done it. And when I came to interview at the station in Detroit, which had now picked up the Xerox format, the, the program director, uh, his name was Dave Herring, came from a jazz background. And I, I remember telling him, you, you know, you need me. Like, I, I was like, I was coming to his rescue, you know, <laughs> instead of interviewing for a job going, please hire me. I was, look, dude, I know more about the music than you do. I know more about the lifestyle than you do. You need me. And I just remember driving home thinking, first of all, where did that boldness come from? A little kid from Flushing driving to Detroit and telling them they need you. And then also thinking, well, I'll never hear from them again. And it was maybe two, three weeks. It was probably closer to three weeks because I did think I would never hear from him again. And he called up and he goes, you know what? You were, you were right. You know the music and the lifestyle better than me. Come, let's go. Let's do this. Coming up. Made sense to have Ted Nugent on with some sort of fierce animal and everything. And you were <laughs> Ted's co-host for the morning show. I actually competed against Drew and Mike. So talk a little bit about that experience. That's, that's hours worth of podcasting right there. Just you know, talking about the rivalry between the two. Although I don't think Riff ever saw it as a rivalry. I think they saw it as a thorn in in the foot of the lion. And they knew once they took the thorn out, they would be fine. Um, I I always uh, got the impression that Ted had a lot of respect for Drew and Mike. Oh, tons. And he he openly said that. Hell, he said it on the show. While we were competing (laughs) against him, he would praise Drew and Mike. This is the History of WRIF, the podcast. Here on the front page of the Detroit News this morning, Ruga Hubble, 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 Hubble captures galaxies colliding. Who gives a flying rat's ass? Me. Well, there you go. That'll make my coffee more delicious, and damn, that'll kill me a deer. 
<laughs> don't right quick. I don't drink coffee, and I ain't going to kill a deer. I care. Well, but why? So they're colliding. So they what, what could be, other than where we came from and where we're going to go and we're We dive, didn't what come from colliding more, galaxies. What could be a bigger chase of knowledge than expanding into the universe? Nothing. Images of two huge galaxies colliding in a cauldron of violence. Now, cauldrons I can dig. A cauldron of violence. A cauldron of violence, that's where I was born. <laughs> so who needs the Hubble? I can just tell you about my youth. <laughs> Images of two huge galaxies colliding. Actually, there was two women... Uh, Getting the last Hagen dazs at Myers last week. <laughs> Image of two huge galaxies colliding in a cauldron of violence. <laughs> <laughs> the two big blubber waddle masters. They were both carrying uh, assault weapons, but they couldn't even get to them because they're so deeply plunged in their blubber. There's just no reason. For <laughs> but you're the only person who can knock fat people while reading about colliding galaxies. <laughs> You know, fat people, I love you madly, and it's the reason I love you madly that I'm trying uh, to tell you. Quit eating so much. The history of WRIF. I'm Mike Staff. Today, our guest is Steve Black. Yeah, Z-Rock um, was an interesting radio station. I was already at the Riff when Z-Rock hit, and it was interesting to have another competitor. I can't recall, maybe you can, if Wheels was – I think Wheels was still around. Yes. So we had Wheels, Z-Rock, and Riff, and CSX. Um, all competing for the rock listener. So it, it got very competitive. And I remember um, Riff and Z-Rock in particular were fierce competitors. And it was a lot of fun. It was. It was a lot of fun. And you know, the crazy thing is there were other stations that came in and out. There was uh, uh, 105 was something. I can't remember. Were they The Edge? Yeah, so they were the edge. You had 89X, who was still alternative. You had K-Rock at one point. So you had different stations kind of coming in and out. Yet when people talk about that time period, it's almost always Z-Rock and Riff. It's like, well, there were a bunch of other stations, but there was something neat about those two. And many of the Z-Rock personalities ended up uh, at, at those stations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And of course, you know, I always bleed riff and I always will. So I'm always happy to say that all these rock radio stations came and went, yep. but the riff always maintained it. So the big daddy, because, and again, I will always uh, give that credit to the listeners of Detroit because uh, they're the ones that have always supported the riff, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so when you were at Xerox, Steve, um, you had a really unique opportunity to work with Ted Nugent when they decided to flip the format from Xerox to the Bear. And all they really did was kind of change the identity um, and, and called it the Bear and made sense to have Ted Nugent on with some sort of fierce animal and everything. And you were <laughs> Ted's co-host for the morning show that actually competed against Drew and Mike. So talk a little bit about that experience because um, that's just crazy. <laughs> that's that's hours worth of podcasting right there just you know talking about the rivalry between the two although i don't think riff ever saw it as a rivalry i think they saw it as a thorn in in the foot of the lion and they knew once they took the thorn out they would be fine um yeah, I don't, and i always uh, got the impression that ted had a lot of respect for drew and mike oh tons yeah. and he he openly said that hell he said it on the show while we were competing against him he would Praise Drew and Mike. Uh, uh, I, I don't even know where to start with it. I mean, there was just so... Ted was a whirlwind. Uh, you've been around him a little bit, so I'm, sh I'm sure you know. Just He's a force of nature. Um, I thought we balanced 
uh, really well together, uh, meaning I knew when to step back and let him be the force of nature. And I think, um, you know, looking back now some 20 years, I think I was pretty good at stepping up and going, you know what, Ted? No, I ain't buying that. I'm, I, you know, I no, I disagree, which was fine because then he would disagree even more strongly than I disagreed. But I, I do think we had a good balance there. Yeah, and Ted was always a lot of fun on the radio. You know, he kind of he's he'd always been on the radio as an artist come to come in and do interviews. Um, when I was an intern at Wheels, is when he started to come in and just um, do a weeks at a a week's worth of morning show radio at a time when JJ and the Morning Crew or Ken or whatever would be taking a break, and then he went to Riff and he did that same thing for years and years and years. So he kind of got Ted's rhythm, and it was cool because he combined all the rock and roll, and then he have nonstop hunting stories. And I think that's one of the things when he was on the bears, like, like he, he gravitated to basically three subjects, right? Rock and roll hunting and some sort of politics or fraying in the polit in the, in the political world. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and he would tell you it was 60 different subjects. Um, because to him, uh, the topic of guns, the topic of ammunition, the topic of women with guns, the topic of how many guns do you own? That was four different topics. That wasn't guns. Right. You know, <laughs> like, so the, that was the problem we had, uh, you know, juggling that stuff. I don't think we ever got enough rock and roll out of them. Uh, it was too much politics and too much guns. Uh, one of the reasons I left that show uh, when I when I did um you know, there were a couple of different things he said to me, but one of them was, um, I would rather, I, all right, this is not a direct quote. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said something along the lines of, I'd rather be a 10th place morning radio show and talk about the things I care about than a first place radio show and talk about what you want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and from an artistic um, perspective, I can respect that. But from a radio standpoint, that doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> no, especially when you have the kind of talent uh, that he had in the in the type of mix. I mean, you know, granted, we were at a small budget station, a station that didn't even cover the entire, dem- you know, uh, Detroit area. It was it wasn't a powerhouse station, but it was still a blast. Uh, the things that were said on radio, I still can't believe were said on radio. <laughs> it's like you, know, you listen to some of that stuff and you're like are you kidding me like how did that ever you know so part of your kind of a i guess the expectation that the radio station had of you when you were ted's uh, co-host was to because you understood radio so well and of course ted is ted and um he's such a fantastic um radio personality but they wanted you to kind of keep it kind of between the rails right and that was a challenging thing for you to do yeah, one of the better examples of that would be um, Ted would be a little more descriptive of, let's say, one of his rock and roll adventures when it was just me and him in the studio. But since the studio was built on his property in his you know twenty car garage, his wife could come down anytime she wanted. And Shemaine was, it still is. She's wonderful. She's still a friend of mine to this day. I love Shemaine. But Ted didn't talk in as much detail when she would come in the room. So then management would meet with Ted and they'd meet with Ted's management and they'd say, let's do less Shemaine. Can we do less Shemaine? 
and he'd agree, and then we'd go to a commercial break or something, and he'd call her and tell her to come in just to piss people off. And since you couldn't necessarily yell at Ted, I became the guy that everybody yelled at. Like, it was my fault that Shemaine showed up on the show. Like, wh- how is that my fault? He called her. <laughs> and he's at his house on his property, and he's wearing two guns. Like, what the hell do you want me to do? Right. What are you supposed to do? <laughs> Coming up. It was really Drew and Mike at their peak, too. You know, it just, it never got old. Nothing about it ever got old. And, and you can kind of say that about the, the original spirit of radio anyway. Like, I'm not tired of doing radio. You know, the world has changed. Economics have changed. There's a lot of things that have changed, but but radio never got dull. And working at that station was, I mean, you know, times 10 of what what most radio stations would normally be. It, it was It was amazing. Just being in the same room with some of those people would be amazing. This is the History of WRIF, the podcast. Speaking of Like a Stone, you know, whenever you hear music, it, it creates visions in my head. And that solo, it sounds, it always, every time I hear it, it reminds me of dry heaps. It sounds like your guitar is trying, <laughs> it sounds like your guitar is trying to throw up. That's fun. I mean, I, <laughs> I always thought that sounded like sort of astral, echoey, beautiful fireworks and you hear dry heaves that's cool bro that's cool because <laughs> but well, my thought was nobody else has done that that's great yeah. well you know i you know I, I like to draw from many inspirations dry heaving you know some of the dry heaving is one of my main inspirations and you know and hendrix those two are really the Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast i'm mike staff this is the history of wrif today we're talking steve black well, you had a good run with Ted, and that was a couple of years, yeah. and um, and then things just kind of fizzled out at the Bear for you, and you found yourself on Riff in 2003. How'd you get the gig on the Riff? Uh, are you being polite, or do you not remember? Um, I'm curious, because, I, you, because you played a major role in it. I'll, I'll be totally honest. I forgot until <laughs> I was reading your book, and I was like, oh, yeah, I totally remember the conversation at the gym. I remember everything about it. <laughs> Steve and I used to work out at uh, the powerhouse gym together in Madison Heights. Well, not really together. We just kind of work out at the same time. We see each other and we start bullshitting. And um, I don't know. I found out that you you were on the on the beach or something. And yeah, I got fired. I think it was on a Friday. Might have been a third. I think I got fired on a Thursday. And I saw you at the gym on Friday. And I remember you were just happy about it. And I was thinking, well, you're not supposed to be that happy that I got fired. And you were like, no, that means you can come work for the Riff. And I was like. Yeah, I knew if I, if I told Doug Podell that you were available and you wanted to come, he would jump at it. And he did, you know, made a lot of sense. Why wouldn't we want to get you? Yeah, I, I interviewed on the following Monday. So I was <laughs> unemployed for like three days or whatever it was. <laughs> and in, in 2003, um, Man, the lineup was so amazing at Riff. It was Drew and Mike in the morning. You had uh, Doug Podell in middays, Arthur P. in afternoons, Meltdown uh, at night. Screaming Scott was doing overnights. That was such an amazing staff. And then you had you and me and Ann Carlini as, like, the support staff. And that was just a really powerhouse type of air staff for a radio station to have. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, and it was really Drew and Mike at their peak, too. Um, and you know, it just, 
it never got old. Nothing about it ever got old. And, and you could kind of say that about the, the original spirit of radio anyway. Like, I, I'm not tired of doing radio. You know, the world has changed. Economics have changed. There's a lot of things that have changed. But, but radio never got dull. And working at that station was, I mean, you know, times 10 of what, what most radio stations would normally be. It, it, was, it was amazing. Just being in the same room with some of those people would be amazing. Well, and part of the whole um, passion that Riff had was to hang out with our listeners. Like that's that was the fuel that gave us all the energy that we needed to go on the air and kind of connect, you know. So being out on the streets, we'd call it being on the streets, which means you'd be at every concert, every sporting event, every bar, any car show, any motorcycle gathering, anything that was going on, Riff was there. And um, you did a lot of that, as we all did. Um, but that was cool, wasn't it? Yeah, it was cool. And, and I thought that the promotion staff in particular and led by Doug, they were better at choosing who went to what events than any place else I'd ever worked. Before it was just, well, you're a personality, so you go over there because there's people over there. Whereas this was, we had so many people. And if there was a party on the east side, well, that's where Screaming Scott lives, on the east side. And he loves parties. Let's put him there. If there's a Red Wings thing, well, you know, Black's a Red Wings nut. Let's put him there. Or if Meltdown was available, he worked nights mostly. So a lot of times at that point in time, 7 to midnight, he couldn't be at those events. Uh, but if he was available, we could put him there. And, and then it would break down even into... You know, what sort of bands? If Alice Cooper was in town, I was more likely to get the nod. If it was uh, the Rolling Stones, then Podell was going and Art was going. And, like, they really chose wisely who went where so that we were not only interacting with our listeners, but we were interacting with listeners about things that we were already passionate about. Yeah, it was 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 like we're sharing the experience with them. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so cool. And that's a big part of the riff formula. I mean, it's not like a secret sauce. It just is what it is. And I think that if an, you know, a lot of radio stations have tried to do that, but it just didn't have the passion to fuel it. Where with riff, we lived it, we breathed it. That's what we wanted to do. If we weren't lucky enough to be on the radio station, we'd still be at those events. Yep. And um, it was a really cool part of the whole scene at that time. So, Steve, one of the things that's interesting about you is that um, you have done probably as many, if not more, interviews than just about uh, anyone I know. Um, you know, we, we talked before, and it's about 1,500, but just, just for fun, and we're not going to go through it all because we don't have 16 hours, but just start rattling off some of the bands, the bigger names, the bands that you have interviewed, because it kind of sounds like, a, like just a list of the artists that Riff plays, but I still find it fascinating when I hear it out loud. Yeah, it's uh, interestingly, uh, since I'm at my, my, you know, 30 years now on the air total, uh, you can almost find a dividing line of right around 1982 or so. Bands that came out after 82, I've pretty much interviewed. <laughs> Bands that were pre that, a little bit harder. You know, I've, I've never had a chance to interview anybody from Led Zeppelin or, uh, you know, Eric Clapton or so a lot of the really old guys. But some of them I have. One of my favorite interviews was uh, with uh, Chris Squire from Yes. You know, and I mean, that was that was way back. I talked to John Entwistle from The Who. Um, so there were some of those opportunities. 
but most of them, yeah, if I'm going to go through the list, it's, it's you know, Guns N' Roses, it's Sammy Hagar and Van Halen, it's uh, of, among the more current bands, you, you, you know, Alter Bridge and Hailstorm and Nothing More and Avenged Sevenfold. And it, it, uh, I, I actually play a game sometimes when I'm out on uh, remote where I'll take the riff playlist and I'll go through it and see if I can go the entire hour that I've interviewed everybody that's scheduled to play that hour. And it happens a lot <laughs> where, you know, 15 songs on your playlist and I've inter- interviewed all 15 of the bands, you know, it's like, yeah, oh, that's pretty cool. I like that. So fun. Interviews was always one of my f- absolute favorite parts of, uh, of the whole job. I was always amazed that I was getting paid uh, to be having the ultimate rock and roll experience that you couldn't buy that just wasn't for sale. I absolutely loved it. I'm curious though. Um, we've all had a few of these. Um, have you had any bad experiences with a band? Anyone, just being a dick for no reason when you're trying to interview him. Yes. And it comes with a, a pretty fun story. I got to <laughs> tell you. Um, first, do you know who John five is? Uh, that name sounds very familiar. Okay. So he's a Detroit boy and grew up listening to the riff and he loves the riff. I even sent him some riff stickers recently and he was all excited about it. Uh, he is Rob zombies guitarist and he was with Marilyn Manson and he is a session guy plays with everybody. So he once asked me uh, backstage at a Rob Zombie concert, like, hey, who was the worst interview? You know, I just finished interviewing him. And I said, it was Rob Zombie. <laughs> <laughs> and he was shocked. He's like, Rob's the greatest guy in the world, man. What, what do you mean it was Rob Zombie? I, said, I don't know. He was maybe in a mood or whatever. He was being a total dick. He was acting like he owned the place. And, you know, his record hadn't even broke yet. And he grabbed me by the hand and goes, come on, we got to go tell him. Oh, no. <laughs> so we walk into Zombie's dressing room and he's like, dude, I just asked him his worst interview. And he said it was you, you know. <laughs> what was Rob's response to that? <laughs> he thought it was great. He was like, oh, who knows what was going on that day? You know, I have interviewed him five or six times since. So, I mean, he probably doesn't know my name, but he knows my face at least. Uh, and he was he was just he thought it was great. He thought it was funny. That's funny. You know, one of the signature traits of a Steve Black interview is that your interviews are very intelligent. Um, And certainly from a fan's point of view, um, I'm curious, like you talk so deeply about the songs and the arrangements and the guitar stuff. Um, I got to believe that your time that you spent your band uh, really helps in this type of, um, of situation, right? kind of helps you connect with the artist as an artist and a listener. Yeah, I didn't know it as a kid, but I listen to music differently. I listen as a producer, and I didn't find that out until I started interviewing producers. And, and I'm, oh, that's how I think. And, oh, those are the words I use. And so I have a, since I hear music differently, my questions tend to be formulated a little bit differently. Um, Bob Ezrin, my all-time favorite producer, once said, uh, I, I don't remember if he was talking about himself or Jack Douglas or, or some other engineer, but he said something along the lines of engineers uh, hear colors other people don't see. And now that I know that and I understand it, I, I use questions based around that. I, I will I will get into instead of, hey, you have a new song out. Uh, where did that come from? You know, I can frame it more along the lines of, as I was listening to that guitar riff, I was picturing this. 
What were you picturing when you created it? Well, now, instead of answering what the song's about, he's back in the studio recording it. What was I picturing? Oh, my God. He can feel the guitar in his hands. He can think about what he was doing and what. And they just talk differently. They talk openly. Well, and it, that is a very unique uh, interviewing style. Have you ever had a situation where you caught an artist off guard in a good way by your music or your playing and recording knowledge? My uh, first time ever interviewing Slash was, it was a Velvet Revolver tour, their first tour, actually. And I got on the tour bus, and it was one of those, you have five minutes, and the manager's literally standing there looking at his watch. (laughs) And I was about 90 seconds in, maybe my second, third question, and Slash just stopped, and he kind of, you know, put his hands down on the table, and he went, wait a second, who the f*** are you? (laughs) And I went, what? Uh (laughs) <laughs> what? He's like, yeah, he was like, I was just expecting like a radio interview. And I was like, yeah, that's what this is. It's a guitar show. I, oh my God. He goes, can we start over? Like, I'm um, sure. And then, you know, the guy with the watch is doing this. Like, hey, look, look at the time. You got to go. And Slash goes, get off my tour bus. We're talking guitars. He kicked <laughs> his own manager off the bus. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that uh, didn't sit well with the manager. <laughs> Yeah, right. And of course, um, what you're talking about when you talk about the guitar show is the chop shop. That's your syndicated yeah. show. Um, and you have you have two, right? The classic rock chop shop and the chop shop. Yeah, just chop shop and chop shop classic. Uh, and then I also do classic rock live. Uh, I basically program it. Uh, you know, I'm an operations manager for it. I do all the research and, and write the loose script. And uh, Pierre Robert out of WMMR in Philadelphia is the host of that. So, and Meltdown yeah, hosts the show too, right? He did. From 2012 to 2017, we did a 90s-based show called The mm. Core. Cool. And same thing. I would program it and do the, the basic script and research, and then uh, Meltdown would voice it. Coming up. I had no choice. Uh, uh, my first wife, Sabrina, got uh, very ill. She had uh, cancer. And... Throughout her battles, uh, people who battle an illness long enough, other things start to happen. Other parts of your body start to fail. And she had gotten to the point of where she really couldn't be left alone without literally a babysitter of some kind. You know, somebody had to be there to watch her. Uh, So I needed a way to work from home. And the only thing I really knew how to do was radio. This is the History of WRIF, the podcast from Pontiac to Plymouth, 101 WRIF, Detroit. This is the home of rock and roll. Go ahead, tell tell me more. Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. The History of WRIF, I'm Mike Staff. Today, our guest, Steve Black. So the Chop Shop has aired on over 170 radio stations around the U.S. Um, and total, you, uh, total, throughout all the years. Right, and I, I give you so much credit because that was every bit as much of an entrepreneurial type of endeavor as it was a radio uh, type of endeavor because, man, you pounded the pavement to get that show aired on stations. you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I find that... Um, just amazing at how hard you work to get that show live. I had no choice. You know, uh, I, I openly admit that I would, as much as I dreamed of syndication, even going all the way back to WWCK, which we talked about earlier in Flint, one of the first radio shows I ever heard was metal shop 
which was a syndicated radio show. And they would talk about getting letters because it was pre-email from, you know, Tacoma, Washington. And, oh, my God, I'm listening to the same thing as somebody in Tacoma, Washington, you know. So that was a dream for me. And, by the way, while I'm on the topic, half of the Chop Shop's name I got from Metal Shop. Mm. Like, that was my tribute to them. Got uh, it. Helping to get me into music. Um, So uh, my first wife, Sabrina got uh, very ill she had uh, cancer and throughout her battles uh, people who battle an illness long enough other things start to happen other parts of your body start to fail and she had gotten to the point of where she really couldn't be left alone without literally a babysitter of some kind so, you know somebody had to be there to watch her yeah uh, so i needed a way to work from home and the only thing i really knew how to do was radio uh, and I went to Doug Podell and I said, Doug, if I develop a show, if I can find a hole somewhere and do a national show, you know, will you will you help guide me uh, so I can work from home? And that's where it started. So, yeah, I did, you know, at, call in a lot of favors of a lot of program directors and a lot of people to, to get that show on because I had to. You know, I, I wasn't going to leave her to fend for herself. So... So I was working from home and yeah, you know, nearly bankrupted myself a couple of times, but saw it through and, and did okay. It's, you know, and I remember that period um, in your life. And I think a lot of people in Detroit do because Sabrina fought a very public battle uh, with cancer and you were right on at her side the whole way. Um, it's an amazing story. I'll just briefly share uh, Steve and Sabrina were on their way out to Hawaii uh, to get married and correct me if I'm wrong, but Sabrina's having some sort of complications, a lump or something was showing up and you kind of, you were already going to land someplace in California and instead of getting on the next flight, you went to a hospital and after some tests, they basically said, wow, she got cancer. And you said, we're going to Hawaii and we're getting married. And, <laughs> and that battle, that is like, that is truly an amazing uh, story. And then what happened after that? I mean, I think Sabrina and, and, you know, with your help, I just think that you guys really helped open up that conversation. You help people feel at ease about it. You really connected with people through the Sabrina um, Black Foundation um, and all the work that you did with that. Um, looking back now that you've had some space to kind of reflect on it, what what are your thoughts on that kind of period now? I still kind of struggle with it. I think I'm getting better. Uh, for a while, I felt like I was attached to the wrong memories, which is why the uh, Sabrina Black Foundation ultimately uh, was absorbed by Gilda's Club. By me being involved with everything uh, by the foundation, I was tying myself to other patients who were sick. I was tying myself to hospital visits. I was tying myself to eventually to a couple of funerals I had to go to. Um and I was fine with all of that on its own, but it was the memories. I was starting to forget the good memories of Sabrina because all I could think of were the ties to these difficult memories. Uh, so we made contact with Gildas Club and they decided to, you know, absorb the Sabrina Black Foundation. And I just moved to the board of directors for Gildas Club. And now I can be as, in, as involved as much or as little as I want to be. Uh, because there's you know several board members and it's a, a it's not a big organization but it's it's sizable 
And now instead of helping two or three or four cancer patients, we help hundreds, yeah, thousands, that's awesome. thousands. Yeah. It is fantastic and a staple yeah. in Detroit. It's really a kind of that, that beacon of hope for a lot of people. And, you know, when, when anyone is battling something like cancer, I think it is easy for you be, to become defined by that disease. But Sabrina always did an amazing job of not really allowing herself to be defined that way. She was, she knew sports as well as any guy. I remember she kicked my ass in fantasy football more than once. <laughs> you know, she was a rocker. She knew, she knew music. So she kind of kept that identity while, um, while battling something, you know, this difficult. So publicly um, she never shied away from talking about it. It was amazing. No, I, we were out, once it was, I don't think it was a full on public event, like a concert. I think it was a semi private event where there were, you know, still 18, 20 people there, but it was, I want to say it was a friend's house, but I don't remember the setting exactly, but somebody who was comfortable with her and had a good enough friendship with her said, do you mind, can I ask you, how, how do you deal with knowing you're going to die? And she goes, we're all going to die. It's just, I know my expiration date and you don't know yours. Yeah. Right. And I thought, I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, you know, she didn't know an exact date, but she knew, all right, I'm in my last year, year or two. Yeah. Weird. And so she chose to, uh, uh, you know, to steal a Ted phrase to live it up. Yeah. And I always like to say, uh, none of us get out of here alive. Right. (laughs) <laughs> so you really do have to live it up. No question about it. Hey, getting back to the interview, Steve, um, you know, um, Riff has an amazing relationship with all the artists that we play. Bands go out of their way to be cool to Riff and to come in and do interviews. They do free shows. They do live performances. Um, it's not really that way. I think Detroiters expect it because we've always had this great relationship. Um, but it's really not like that around the rest of the country. What do you think it is about the Riff that breeds that kind of loyalty from the music community? Um. My answer is really going to be the same as as why listeners connect with Riff. I think it's the same reason that musicians connect with Riff. And I'm trying to find the right phrase. Um, one of my program directors very early on in, in radio, uh, Joe Bevilacqua, said, you know, his secret sauce for radio was, tell the listeners what you're going to be and then be that. Right. Just just be that if you're going to be whatever it is, the best rock of the 80s. OK, we'll let everybody know that's what you're going to be. But then be that. Don't be anything else, but be that. And I think Riff is better, um, you know, certainly of any station I grew up listening to or have been around better at being that than anybody. And And it was that way, you know under different think of all the different ownerships all the different program directors all the different personalities everybody seems to have loyalty to the logo if you will right we we all support the concept of the riff regardless of right i mean we all respect whoever's running the ship at different times right and you may do things slightly differently but you're still doing it for the same reasons and i i think that that resonates with rockers they know that you were there uh in some cases some of these younger bands before they were born they know that the radio station was doing it and they're pretty sure you're going to be there tomorrow doing it 
you know, whereas when they maybe go to Chattanooga, they don't know that. So as this, you know, this podcast is the history of WRIF. One of the things that's been really fun about talking to um, to some of the people that have talked to everyone from Ken Calvert and Costan and Arthur P., of course, and JJ, um, is I'd love to ask um, you guys what you think about other personalities on, on the riff and how they, how or maybe why they resonate or some funny stories that you might have. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna rattle off some names and you can just tell me some stories if you. If you have any on them, let's begin with uh, the big guys in the house right now, Dave and Chuck. What about those guys? I think their timing, I call it pacing. I don't know what they call it. I assume they're aware of it. And I'm going to go ahead and say this is Dave driven. Uh, but when when we think about most of the morning shows that we grew up listening to, if Drew and Mike got on a subject and it was working, they stayed on that subject. And if it was a big subject, they'd do a whole show on it. They'd do three and a half hours on it. They would explore, 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 and dig into that subject. And then Dave came along, and no matter how good a subject was, he was done with it in five minutes and on to the next subject. And that pacing was so refreshing. It still is. You know, and they've been doing it for years, if you go back to their 89X stuff. It is pace, pace, pace. Opinions, comedy, fun, next subject. Opinions, comedy, next subject. Opinion. The pace is unbelievable. And I think the reason that works so incredibly well in radio is uh, as people commute, it's easier for them to absorb smaller chunks. Right? Because if I can stay and listen, because I know this is going to be over with in just a few minutes. It's like I can dedicate a few minutes. I can't dedicate three hours. Yeah, you know, one of the things that listeners don't really think about, why would they? But there really is strategy behind that. I mean, Dave and Chuck are thinking about that strategy. They're thinking about how the listeners are are commuting and the time that they actually have to spend with them. And and they're producing this really kick-ass show um, based on that very specific strategy. And that's what the winners do. And And I think they're just... You know, the key to a morning show is is balance. And when you think of the great morning shows, whether they were in this market or not, you usually had the well-read guy and then you had, you know, more the straight guy and the comedian. Right. And and Dave and Chuck do that as good as anyone. And, uh, you know, Andy now, too, of course, is the other comedian in the room. And I will say this. For me personally, the person who gives me the most laugh or the hardest laughs is Lisa Way. Lisa will say nothing, nothing, little bit of input, little bit of input, and then knock you over. And it's like, right, because the other guys, you know, Dave included and James and everybody's getting in on it. And it's joke, 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 opinion, opinion, opinion. And they're all coming. And then Lisa comes out of nowhere and just hits you. And you're like, oh, my God, that's awesome. (laughs) No, when we talk about authenticity. Authentic uh, personalities. Meltdown always is one of the first guys that come to mind. The guy is so genuine. You know, what you hear on the air is who that guy is. I mean, he, he loves motorcycles. He loves hockey. He loves rock and roll. He loves NASCAR. I mean, he and he talks about and does such a great job. Tell us a little bit about your kind of experience with Meltdown. Two of my favorite meltdown things, uh, I've said this many times, it's the reason I asked him to do a syndicated show for me back when we were doing it together. I think per minutes on the air, uh, he makes less mistakes than anybody I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and not because 
he's pre-recording it and cutting out his mistakes. He's just that prepared. Yeah. And, and that well-oiled that he can go. And I've seen him come in, you know, from an event or something and in no time to prepare and boom, the mic's on and it sounds like he's totally prepared. <laughs> yeah. That part comes from, well, he's well-trained and very disciplined on the yeah. air. Sure. Super yep. disciplined. And, and the other thing I love about Meltdown, just because it fits my personality, he's kind of fun to pick on. He's kind of easy to pick on. Yeah. And well, he can take a joke, too. Well, that was my point. Yeah. He's going to give it back and probably harder than what you gave it to him. <laughs> right. Uh, but there's no hard feelings with it. It's like you can really, you know, joke with Meltdown and you can get dirty and you can get wherever you want to go. As light as you want to be or as heavy as you want to be, he's going to take it and he's going to give it back. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so true. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about Arthur P. Big Daddy. You know, he wasn't the immediate icon to me that he was to, to all the Detroit guys. Yeah, he was uh, to me for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's just because, again, I didn't really know who he was when I was growing up. It was just, wow, that voice. Yeah. Uh, and then when I started coming to Detroit to work, I was immediately competing against him. And, and so then you started to realize just how good he was at all these subtle little things. And then, geez, what was it? Five, six, maybe six years later, I get to work with him. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget the day I came in and I went to introduce myself and he knew everything about me. Mm. Hey, oh yeah, I know you and I know this and I know that. I'm like, well, how the hell does Arthur P know all this stuff about me? Like, <laughs> just sharp and smart and wonderful and, and well-informed and well-connected and yeah. And massive amounts of credibility in every situation you'd walk into. And the thing I'm most proud of when I think of Arthur P, I think of the voice first. I think of Detroit first. Um, he might be the most generous person I've ever worked with. Yeah. You read my mind. Yeah, no doubt. And that's a secret. I don't know if people realize that about art. I, yeah, because it didn't fit his reputation, if you will. Yeah. yeah. But what if you needed something, you could count on art. Yeah, he's a giver. Very generous guy. Yeah. Very, very generous guy. Uh, this podcast is so awesome. The history of WRIF, you know, going back and we're up to almost 50 years of being on the air, which is so rare. I just hope that Riff listeners understand how rare that is. There's a, we could probably count the radio stations on one hand that have been around for 50 years, with the same format and the same kind of identity. It's really, it's an amazing thing. and such a privilege to have been part of it. When you look back on Riff, Steve, um, on the whole thing, on the riff, what do you suppose it is um, that has made riff so popular with the people in Detroit? I don't think I truly understood it until I got there and started working there. But for me, the key is that at no point have I ever seen anybody on a corporate level, a general manager level, or a program director level come in and say, you have to sound like that person and that person has to sound like that person. Nope. None of us have ever sounded alike. Screaming Scott didn't sound like anybody else, but Screaming Scott, right? His approach is delivery completely different than Ann Carlini. And, and one of the first introductions to that was you and I used to work back to back on the weekends. You know, either I would come in and follow you or you would come in and follow me. Our approaches were totally different, right? Our personality is slightly different. Our approach is totally different. 
Yet nobody said, hey, I need you to be Mike Staff. No, we already have a Mike Staff. You just be you. And you don't get that at every radio station. Well, you don't. And for me, I just keep going back to the authenticity word, you know, and I think yeah. that has done an amazing job of attracting people and hiring people that have that that type of authenticity because you can't bullshit people. You just, you can't do it. People are too smart, especially rockers in Detroit. They'll sniff out a fake and a half a heartbeat, you know, and I look back at some of the, the you know, the air personalities and riff that were here and gone, that was probably one of the reasons they sniffed them out, you know? Yeah. Detroiters don't want to be bullshitted, man. They're too smart. Right. Well, well, let's say you're uh, coming in and you're uh, K-Rock, right? And you're going to bring in Howard Stern and then you're going to go on the air and your approach is to tell your listeners that you have more credibility than Riff, that you're better than Riff, that you're, well, they can, no, you're not. You just got here. I've been listening to them for 40 years. (laughs) Like you lose credibility when you say things that you know aren't true. Well, yeah, and I think that if you look back on the Howard Stern show, I think Detroit was probably one, the biggest flop that he had um, just because they didn't understand what they're walking into. Drew and Mike were huge. I mean, Drew and Mike were beloved in, in Detroit. And for that station to come in and start picking on, you know, the people that or the radio station that people love the most, man, that was a bad idea and it just didn't work where Howard would uh, would um, be turned on in these other markets and man he would instantly be number one and he could never lift off in Detroit no. and it's the loyalty of Detroiters it's the fact that they can sniff out phonies who aren't from around here you know and they like the hometown boys yeah be yourself be you know tell people what you're going to be and then be that and it it really that's uh, I think you know, I'm generalizing. Obviously, there's been a tremendous amount of talented people. I don't want to diminish any of that. There's been tons of research, as we learned with uh, 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 Fred and Tom when they were on doing the podcast. Uh, I'm not diminishing any of that. But the broad, broad stroke is that authenticity that you speak of. Riff has done that year after year after year. And it's the one thing money can't buy. I don't care how, how big your budget is. If you want to come to town and advertise a radio station, you can't buy a heritage. That's you true. Can, you can only earn that. Yeah. You can only earn it. The history of WRIF. Uh, Steve Black, I can't tell you how much fun this has been. I can't tell you how much I love doing this podcast with you. And uh, thanks for the great conversation. Super interesting. Thank you, man. Appreciate you.